If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to the book of Romans. As we begin this season of giving at Christmas, I thought it would be a great time for us to focus not just on the gift we've been given, but the giver who gave it. Paul, the apostle, is one of my scriptural mentors. He was an old sinner like me, and yet he was transformed by God's grace. And he writes much about his appreciation for who God is and what he's done, his love for us, and what he accomplished at the cross. And I love this section in Romans 5 that helps us to remember why he gave Jesus. Paul wrote this in Romans 5, beginning in verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God, thank you for these words. They're a great encouragement. And they remind us as we come to this table of the greatness of the gift we've been given, greater than we know. But today, Lord, our focus is on more than the gift. It's on the giver, you. So God, as we come to this table, speak to us. Reveal all that you find in our hearts. And let us remember you today in a way that honors you and changes us. And we'll thank you in your precious name. Amen. A visit with a giver reminds us of the gift. Uh, right after Carla and I got married about 100 years ago, probably seems like 150 for Carla, but anyway, right after we got married, we immediately moved to Oregon to begin going to school and a new ministry there. And I still remember one of the first visits of a couple from San Jose who were going to stop by just to say hello on their way to somewhere else. They had given us a can opener for a wedding gift, and Carla made sure it was prominently displayed on the counter during their visit. I couldn't remember who gave it to us. Carla never forgets. It's amazing. You give her a gift, she'll remember that 30, 40 years later. She remembers who gave it, when they gave it, how they gave it, why they gave it. I'm thinking it's a can opener. Anyway, (laughs) it wasn't that the gift for me wasn't appreciated. It's just that after a while, it's easy to take some things for granted. Sometimes we need a visit with the giver to remind us of how much we appreciated the gift and to be reminded of why the giver gave it in the first place. That's why I love communion. And that's why we need some time today to meet at this table with the one who has given us the greatest gift of all. Jesus gave us the gift of life through the sacrifice of himself. 
Paul couldn't have been clear when he wrote in Romans 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because eternal life is a gift, we are always in danger of taking it for granted. That's why throughout the scriptures, we are constantly reminded of the gospel, who Jesus is and why he came and why he died and what he's done. Because we can easily drift away from that understanding. Do you remember the book of Hebrews in chapter two, verse one? The writer said we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Do you see that? You can drift away and come to a point where you begin to ignore the greatness of this gift. Or what the writer said in Hebrews 3 verse 12, see to it brothers and sisters that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. Don't let a sinful, unbelieving heart turn you away from the sin, from, from your devotion to God, because if you allow that to happen, Sin will harden you. And we all know people who once were living vibrantly for Christ, but who do so no longer. So be careful you don't drift away. Be careful you don't turn away. Be careful you don't forget, he said. This is one of the reasons why we're called to this table of remembrance. Communion is our remembrance of the death of Jesus. This meal is a memorial of the new covenant established in his blood. We've said many times that eating this won't make you a Christian. It won't get your sins forgiven. It won't earn you grace or get you into heaven. The only way to be saved from what sin has done is by coming into a relationship with God through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as sufficient to pay for our sin and open the way for us to come to God when we believe. When you invite Christ into your heart, when you believe in him, then you are saved. Eating this meal won't do that for you. But... Eating this meal as Christ intended can help us to remember the greatness of this gift and even more why it was given. Because communion reminds us of why God gave Jesus to save us. Now there are a lot of reasons in the scripture, the chief of which is that Jesus was given to glorify God. But in Romans 5, there are two more very powerful reasons today. One is because of the depth of our need. And the other is because of the greatness of his love. God gave life in Jesus as a gift because of the depth of our need. Paul said in chapter 5 of Romans and in verse 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Or in verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or in verse 10, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Giving is often motivated by seeing the depth of the need. Why is it 
Then when we heard about the devastating fires in Napa and Santa Rosa last year, within 24 hours of putting the word out, that lobby was full of water and food and clothes and shoes and medicine. Why were we able within 48 hours to take two truckloads of relief supplies to, a, to those hurting people from one church? Because we were all motivated by the depth of the need that was real. Why, a couple of weeks ago, did we by faith send $4,000 up there to the people in paradise? People from our church that have moved up there are telling us what's like. We've had people from our church go up there. We have a sister church up there that's informing us. And their immediate need, they said, was for money. We didn't even have time to take an offering. We just sent it trusting that our congregation would continue to give more if it was needed. Why in the world would the congregation do that? Because they are motivated by the depth of the need. The Bible says that God is the ultimate giver. And he saw the depth of our need. And it motivated him to give the greatest gift, his own son. That's why this verse that we say and recite so many times is such powerful meaning. We can't forget John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Paul uses four words in Romans 5 to describe the depth of the need that God saw that motivated him to give. Powerless, ungodly, sinners, Enemies. Verse 6, powerless. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, strengthless. That same word is used in Acts 4, verse 9 to describe, remember the impotent man who in his crippling disease was powerless to stand or do anything to change his condition? It's the same word that was used in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7 in regards to moral weakness when Paul used the phrase a weak moral conscience describing people who have been so enslaved to sin that they are morally powerless to make a change to live right before God or to save themselves. And it's used here in Romans 5, 6 to describe our total inability to save ourselves from the crippling penalty of sin and death. We are powerless to change that but it doesn't stop people from trying they can try to be good go to church get baptized take communion they can do all of those things but it won't save you we are powerless to save ourselves that was me once lost in sin and powerless to change it he also described uh, the depth of our need with the word ungodly in verse 6. At the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Not just the irreligious or those without reverence for God, but those acting purposefully against God and his commands. To be ungodly is to be unlike God in every possible way. It's translated elsewhere to be wicked. It is not something you want to be or a condition in which you want to stay. In fact, 
the law of God was given to make us aware of our ungodliness and our sense of need for a savior. That's why when Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, he said in verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Do you see ungodliness and its symptoms in that list? God said those things, that ungodliness that was once in me is opposed to the gospel and all that God is. Ungodly. It's the word that Peter used to describe the people in Noah's day. And you know what happened to them. It's a word he used to describe ungodly angels and what happened to them. And the sexually deviant cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened to them. You remember? 2 Peter 2 verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes. Why did he do all this? They made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. Ungodly is living in defiance of the only one who can save you. It's living as though there is no God to whom you are accountable. People, this is describing what I was. All of us without Christ. Powerless. Ungodly. Then he says in verse 8, the fourth need God saw in our depth was that we are sinners. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the most comprehensive term to describe people who are like me, who are morally and spiritually corrupt. Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The first time I heard that, I thought, no lie, man, that's me. Somehow I knew that was me. People, we are all sinners by nature and by choice. We sin because we're sinners. And because God is holy and we are sinners, we are totally cut off from relationship with God. This is why Paul told the Romans in Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Life is found in God. There is no life apart from him. Death is separation from God. We are all sinners separated from God and existing in a state of spiritual and eternal death apart from Christ. That was me. Powerless, ungodly, a sinner. If that were not enough, he says in verse 10 that we're God's enemies. For if while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? 
enemies of God. People, there, there is no middle ground with this. You're either a child of God walking in relationship with him or you're an enemy of God. There is no middle ground. He loves us, but there can be no relationship with us because we are living in rebellion against God apart from Christ. We are enemies of all that God is and all that God seeks to do. So we are powerless, ungodly sinners who are enemies of God, spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, spiritually dead. That is how God describes the depth of our need. Satan doesn't want you to hear it, and he doesn't want you to believe it. Because until you see the depth of your need, you'll never see your need for a Savior. This is why God gave Jesus to die on a cross. So that through his death, he could pay for our sin and bring us to God. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. To bring you, the powerless, the ungodly, the sinner, and the enemy. Christ died to bring you to God. And this is why God gave us Jesus, our perfect high priest, who has offered the sacrifice of himself to meet our need. You remember in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, when the writer is describing the high priest and the sacrifices and how Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things? Hebrews 7, verse 26. Such a high priest truly meets our, what? Need. He meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. People, do you see how ridiculous it is when people say all religions are the same? Do you see how ridiculous it is when people say there are many ways to God? All religions are not the same. There are not many ways to God. There's only one. The depth of our need was so great, only God could meet it. And only God could meet it in one way. He had to give a perfect, sinless, godly son to be the substitute in our place. And that's who Jesus is, the gift of God given in response to the depth of our need. And given not only because of the depth of our need, but God gave us life in Jesus as a gift because of the greatness of his love. Paul said in verse 7, chapter 5, verse 7, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. People will occasionally die for somebody they think is really, really good. But righteous people are in a different category. Righteous people make them convicted. Righteous people expose their sin. Righteous people remind them of how far they are from God. Many people wouldn't give anything for a righteous person they've grown to hate because they expose the darkness of their sin in a light, in a world of darkness, they are the light. But good people, somebody might die for a good person someone they deem good. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love. The love of God is so great, words alone to describe it are not enough. You know, I once came across a question years ago that got me thinking about that. The question was a little different. It was simply this. How would you describe a rainbow to someone who's always been blind, has never been able to see? How do you describe red to someone who's never seen a color, has no concept of what color is? I read of one person who had a blind friend and he just tried to describe a rainbow to him. So he said he tried to describe colors and arches and light, but nothing was working because the poor blind guy who had never seen had no concept of any of those things. So in an attempt to try to explain a rainbow, he said he took his friend to a bridge, a stone bridge that had an arch. He took his friend's hand and he ran it over the arch. And he said to him, now do you understand a little more what a rainbow is? And his friend said, yeah, I think so. It's something heavy. Some things are impossible to fully comprehend unless they can be seen. The love of God is one of those things. That's why Paul said God demonstrated his love at the cross. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God could have revealed his love to us in so many ways. He could have just shouted from heaven once a week. Hey, I love you. And everybody would have said, what was that? Uh, God could write it in the clouds. I was traveling with my two grandsons this week. Owen looks out the window and he goes, bump it. That cloud looks like a car. Now the grandson Levi looks out and he says, Bumpa, that one looks like a cloud. (laughs) I said, that's great. A car, a cloud, whatever you see in it, God could have spelled it out, I love you in the clouds. You know, God could have written it down so he could read it again and again and again. And you know what? He did. But even with this, and even if he shouted from the heavens or wrote it in the clouds, it wouldn't be enough for us to see and comprehend and understand a love like this greater than we've ever known. So what did he do? He demonstrated it. He took his son and spiked him to a cross for me. And for you.
Jesus took our sin and our death on himself at the cross. People, if you love Jesus, you understand how pure and holy and right and good and awesome he is. It's painful to realize what God did out of love for us. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And the result of this love gift is staggering. Romans 5, verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, we were powerless, but Jesus wasn't. He had life in him and the ability to give it, and he gave it on a cross. We were ungodly, but Jesus wasn't. He is the very righteousness of God. We were sinners, but Jesus wasn't. He lived a sinless life and could offer that life as payment for our sin. We were enemies of God, but Jesus wasn't. He's God's son, and he has now reconciled us to God by taking death in our place and giving us life in return, life forever with God. Did you see the difference that Jesus makes? The reason God gave his son to die on a cross? We were powerless, ungodly sinners and enemies of God, but now in Christ, Paul tells the Romans, you are justified by his blood, saved from God's wrath, reconciled to God, and saved through his life. And that's why the Bible makes clear, you believe that, and you have that Christ in you, you're a Christian. And if you have that Christ in you, it will change the way you live. Changes the way you live. All this because of the greatness of his love. A love he demonstrated at a cross. And a love he now wants displayed toward others through us. That they might know the love of God for them. That's why John said in 1 John 4, verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Everyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God demonstrated his love for us in this. And this is why we need to keep the one precious gift of Jesus in Christmas and throughout the year. Because he's so, the gift is so easy to forget. Now as reading about an event that took place at St. James Lutheran Church in Jacksonville, Florida. 
the kids were putting on a Christmas play. And to show the radiance of the newborn Savior, an electric light bulb was hidden in the manger. All the stage lights were to be turned off at a strategic moment, leaving only the brightness of the manger shining. But the little boy who controlled the lights got confused and he turned them all out. The stage went totally black. They said it was a tense moment, broken only when one of the shepherds said in a loud stage whisper, hey, you switched off Jesus. Well, it's easy to do, isn't it? To switch off Jesus. To relish the gift and forget the giver. So communion gives us a moment to remember not just God's greatest gift, but God who is the giver and why he gave it. because of the depth of our need and because of the greatness of his love. This bread, Jesus said, is my body and this cup is my blood. It's given for you. Therefore, when you eat it, remember. Remember me. Lord, that's what we're here to do today. Thank you. We don't mean to do it. I don't mean to do it. But at times, this is an easy gift to take for granted. Or we can relish the gift and we forget the giver or why it was given. Today, Lord, in this room are a lot of people who love you, many more listening online. I love you too. And I want to thank you for this time to remember. May it be for your glory and our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.